0: And welcome. You're listening to The Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5 FM. I'm sitting in the studio, as usual, with Stephen Hostetter, who's here. And we're also going to be talking to MPP for Toronto, Danforth, Uh, a little bit later in the show. Peter Tebbins, who's going to be talking about uh, oil trains, uh, infrastructure investments, and uh, as well as fracking. Uh, here in Ontario, but also applicable to other provinces as well At the end of the show, we also have a number of also oil-related news headlines We're going to be going through some of them you might have seen If you are a, a, a constant Twitter user One of many of the people that we know who are basically glued to Twitter constantly You probably already know a couple of these headlines But we'll be running through a few of them But first, before we get to any of that I'm sitting in studio also with President and Founder of Greenpack, Aaron Freeman Welcome to The Green Majority
1: Thanks for having me here
0: uh, so the very first thing I want to clear up, because it was actually even our co-host who's not here today, Kevin Farmer, as soon as I said Green Pack said, is that a political action committee? And that must be a common question that you get. So can you please just, just set the record straight here? What is Green Pack and to what extent is an R&R not you a political action committee, quote unquote?
1: So we're not a political action committee in the American sense, uh, so we're not, uh, those, those would be illegal in Canada. We don't funnel money directly to candidates, uh, and we don't run attack ads. Uh, so that's, that's just not, that's not our approach. We have a much more grassroots approach to building environmental leadership in Canada. We call ourselves a PAC because we want to be upfront about the fact that we are political, we are about political transformation, and we are about changing the face of leadership in this country. Mm. And so, in to to
0: what extent does this have to do with, uh, as you said, sort of specific parties? And and the reason I'm asking you that is because the, the part of your name is the same part of our name of this show, which means
1: I'm assuming you get the same question that we do, which is that oh, so do you work for the Green Party? So we have a completely nonpartisan approach. Uh, we endorse candidates from all major parties, um, and uh, that's that's a that's a really that's a that's a first principle for us. We We make sure that our approach is completely uh, across the spectrum and we don't place a preference. We don't actually have a focus on parties at all. We actually focus on the candidate and on getting individual leaders recruited, nominated, elected and supported.
0: And how have you uh, how what sort of sort of feedback and response have you gotten from both the public and and I'm assuming politicians have had a variety of feelings about what you're doing as well. Can you talk a little bit about how this has been received as you've been going about getting this started?
1: Well, it's really, since we've launched at the end of March, it's really been an abundance of opportunities for us. It's The response has been pretty overwhelming. We've met with all the major parties uh, and with most of the campaign teams on those parties. They're actually quite positive um, about it. They, they see this as an opportunity for, they all believe that they have strong environmental leadership in their ranks, and so they see this as a real opportunity. Um, individually, you talk to some party people and and there's a point in the conversation where the partisan lens comes over their eyes and and the conversation changes a little bit. I've, I've, I've been able to detect the look in their eye when that, that sort of thing happens. <laughs> and it's, uh, it's you know, it's they, they sort of start doing the math where they say, well, wait a second, you're going to endorse our guys, but you're also going to endorse the other guys' guys. I don't know how I feel about that. And this whole thing kind of circumvents the whole party system because you're really just focused on the candidate. And I don't know how I feel about that. But generally, the response has been positive. And from the public and from the media. I mean, the media has loved it because it's our idea is a bit disruptive and it's political, and so it's got some appeal there. Uh, we're we're a pack in name, but we don't do the kinds of things that packs do. In fact, we are very supportive of trying to rein in. Uh, a lot of the attack ad spending that goes on among political action committees. So there's a lot of kind of man bites dog or dog bites man. No, nope, man bites dog uh, <laughs> elements to our story that uh, that are that are very appealing, I think, to uh, both to the media and to the public. But generally, I think the reason why things have resonated with people is we give something we give people something to do about the state of environmental leadership in Canada, and really. If you care about the lack of environmental leadership in politics in Canada, there's not much that you can do that's tangible. I mean, you can you can join a political party, but for 98.5 percent of us, that's that's really not going to be an option that we're going to consider seriously. Mm. So Green Pack is the other thing that you can do that's got a nonpartisan approach. It doesn't. We don't get mired in the in the um, the, the the sort of rabid partisanship that. That, that typifies politics. It's a much more hopeful and solutions-oriented organization.
0: Mm. I, I want to get more into um, sort of what, you know, your average people, our, our listeners that are listening to right now can can do, how they can go and what types of sort of is like specifically what you're doing. But but I can't let one thing go before we get there, which was, I'm just, I, I, I realized that you couldn't possibly sort of name names here and that that just wouldn't be helpful to you. But I'm really, really curious. You said you sort of, you've been learning where sort of people's lenses start to kick in. Where tends to be that line? Like what types of experiences? Have you had? I'm, I'm, I'm just I'm interested in sort of have you learned sort of what thing is the thing that you say? And aha, that's this is where their eyes are going to sort of, or they're going to go, whoa, okay. I'm, you know, wh- where is that moment for people tending to be?
1: Well, it depends on the audience. I mean, for a political audience, if 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 you see everything through a partisan lens, and if every problem has a partisan solution, Green Pack's not going to be your organization. And, and, and we find that out pretty quickly with folks. Uh, because we don't have a party, we, we, we don't have, uh, we endorse from all parties, we have a nonpartisan approach, and it's just, this idea just isn't going to work for you, if, if, if that's your, your way of looking at the world. But if you place the environment above politics, and you really want to focus on changing where Canada's going, to re- turning that ship around, Green Pack is really going to appeal to you because we're we're, we're practical. We focus on getting a small number of really de- dedicated and committed uh, environmentally minded people elected, and we focus on supporting them so that they can move the needle on the environment. Mm. It, do you think that the, the sort of the, the landscape has
0: changed a little bit? How, are you feeling a little bit of a, a shift here? And, and what by when, my, by reference, what I mean by that is, of course, you know, uh, there's the example of anytime you talk to a liberal candidate about why aren't you being stronger on the environment, they'll be like, well, look, we tried and we got crucified for it. Um, so what do you want me to do? But that was years ago. Do, you, do you, Has the landscape changed? Is, is it no longer in Canada that the environmental concern is sort of as they say, or as Kevin likes to say, uh, a mile wide and an inch deep, which is that people really love nature right up until their jobs get threatened? Or, or do you think there really has been a change in understanding among voters that there is no separation between the economy and the environment and that we're talking about the same thing when we have these conversations? Do you, th- do you think people get that now?
1: So yes and no. I, the, the no is um, I think that sentiment has always been there. Uh, and the yes is I do think that there are things that are moving it more to the fore. And some of those things are at the local level, like the pipeline debates in, in places like BC and, and Quebec in particular. And that's filtering through to the political class quite a bit. They're hearing that loud and clear. There, there's seats that are now threatened uh, because of that issue. Uh, and and it it's true on the on the macro level. It's true across Canada. If you look at polling results for probably about five to fifteen percent of the population, it will influence, it'll be a major influence on their vote. For about a solid, for a solid majority, and that's a solid majority in every province and every demographic, environment has very strong support, uh, but it's a second or third or fourth priority. Both of those things, both of those phenomenon, so spread out support, that is a is second, third, fourth priority, those things don't translate in a geographically based electoral system like ours. The first past the post system won't translate that into political power. We need a different mechanism outside of the electoral system that's going to do that for us. Mm. Green Pack is built for that. Our entire model is built around our current electoral system and translating the support for environmental issue that's broad and across the country into something that's politically meaningful. Uh, you, you've brought up sort of another really good point, which
0: is that a lot of the conversation that's happening right now is that uh, many people are saying that we, that we just structurally can't get and – and I'll ask you if you agree with that or not – but many, some people are saying – uh, from my perspective, many people are saying that um, we essentially can't vote for the types of changes that we need because our election system, as you said, first past the post, is is pretty much not designed for that task. And that and that many people are now saying that par- the pretty much the only way we're going to get the sort of rapid, full force, complete buy-in to the types of policies that we need to not only protect our economy from the giant shift that's about to happen any second now towards renewables, where everything we've been putting our eggs in one basket in is going to be devalued um is to do, is to change that voting. So when you're going out is it part of your strategy at all to also talk about things about, you know, changing things like the voting system or do you sort of more restrict it to those
1: just sort of quote-unquote environmental topics? We're really focused on building environmental leadership in Canada and that's the that's our primary focus. Uh, so it's not, that's not something we're particularly focused on. And I don't want to overreach on that. Hmm. Environment's going to punch below its weight as long as it's left on its own in our first-past-the-post electoral system. But we still live in a democracy, and there's still progress that we can make and that we do make on environmental issues. And at the federal level, what we've seen over the last decade and a half or so is almost every time that we've made that progress – and I can run you through countless examples – Almost every time that we've made progress on environmental issues, it's because we've got backbench members of parliament who are working, usually across party lines, pushing the issue within their own caucuses, pushing the issue with their leaders' offices, working in committee, introducing private members' bills, doing all the things that private members can do uh, to move to move the needle forward on an issue. And you know, I mean, I've so I, if I can if I can divert for a moment and, and leave the era of the soundbite for a second, mm. uh, I. You know, I worked on the last major campaign, the last campaign to pass a significant environmental law at the federal level in this country. So that was the Species at Risk Act. I was the coordinator of the Endangered Species Campaign, and it coordinated almost all of the major environmental organizations in this country, as well as a whole host of groups from other sectors. And it took us 10 years to pass that law. And that law was passed in 2002. So it's been 13 years since we've passed a major law on environment in this country. That's remarkable. And that law was passed with backbench members of each major party working across party lines, in some cases voting against their government, uh, to get a strong law passed uh, that exists to this day and has made a difference to this day. It's not a perfect law, but it is one of our stronger environmental laws. But in the 13 years since then, we've made no major legislative progress on the environment. Laws aren't the be-all and end-all, but they're a pretty good indication of where we're going on the environment. And that phenomenon is happening here in Canada, and it's not happening elsewhere. If you look at the international rankings, the OECD rankings, the rankings of industrialized countries on environmental performance over the last decade and a half, we've gone from, well... In two th- in, if you go back to 1992 at the Earth Summit in Rio, we were heroes. We were at the top. We were leaders. We had saved the biodiversity protocol in the, at the Earth Summit, uh, the acid rain protocol, the ozone uh, the, the, the Montreal protocol to, to solve the problem of the ozone layer, the hole in the ozone layer. Countless numbers of international agreements negotiated because of Canada and often in Canada. So fast forward 10 years to when we passed the Species at Risk Act, we were in the middle of the pack. We were wringing our hands. We couldn't believe it. What happened to Canada? We were in the middle of the pack time after time, year after year in the rankings. And of course, you know where we are today. And in the last three years, we're at the bottom, 27th out of 27 industrialized countries. So something's happening here in Canada. And a lot of that has to do with the political relevance of environmental issues and how that's fallen. And what do you think we can do
0: to change about that? I mean, I, and and I understand that the answer is well, of course, what Greenback is doing with politicians, but I, I mean, with the expense that the 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 public, mm-hmm. right? It- is is I mean, Green Pack is, is sort of about, we was talking largely about the politics. Is there enough public support for that? Or do we also need to be raising the level of discourse with the public too? Or do you think that the public has that
1: discourse and they're just not being heard? Well, I don't think there's a silver bullet here. There's lots of, of work to be done to, to, to educate and mobilize the public. Mm. Uh, but the public, the, the support for environmental issues is there. Poll after poll demonstrates it. Uh, they, there's a significant amount of support, even with regard to their decision, a decision about how you vote in an election. Um, but again, it doesn't translate very well mm. in, in in our first past the post system. And there's another dyna- dynamic at play. The, par- the portion of the public that's most active on environmental issues, members of environmental advocacy organizations tend to be overwhelmingly white, upper middle class and urban. When you look at who the political parties are trying to court right now, uh, they're swing voters, people in, in, to, who, who live in places that tend to swing from one party to another, uh, and ridings that tend to swing from one party to another. And those are the most relevant voters in the country. Those are the voters who are, who are really heard by the parties because they're looking for their votes. Those voters, overwhelmingly, are not urban, so they're ex-urban, suburban voters. They're ethnic, and they're lower and middle class voters. And those are the opposites. Those demographics are the opposites to the most organized component of the environmental sector. Mm-hmm. So when political parties look at their electoral map, we're nowhere. Environment is basically nowhere. It's uh, on their path to victory. So every, sort of at every corner at the political side of government, we're punching below our weight. Mm. So we'll do our best to do the ad, uh, educate and activate part
0: if you, if you stick to the politics part. <laughs> <laughs> Deal. Deal. Uh, I think – so uh, I, I want to wrap up this section, but Aaron's going to stick around and hopefully and, and comment on some news for us a little bit later. So b- before we wrap up our, our directed conversation with you about GreenPack, please do uh, answer my earlier teased question about uh, how do people actually get involved with you? What can they do to learn more information?
1: Uh, give them the uh, – give our listeners your spiel, if you will. So GreenPack.ca, Greenpac.ca is our website. And the first step there is check out our video, but also take our pledge. So the pledge asks you uh, – sorry, a survey uh, gets you engaged and gives you the information that you need to make a pledge to candidates. We ask people to make a pledge of volunteer hours and and financial support to a candidate. And that enables us to tailor your preferences about what kind of candidate that you want to support – Uh, when we do our endorsements, which should be in the end of August. Our expert panel does an assessment of all the candidates running, and we basically tailor it to your preferences. You'll get the whole list, and it's a short list, probably about about 15 candidates, and then the one that best matches your preferences. Uh, So go to the website, greenpack.ca, take the survey, and that's the way to get started with Greenpack. Yeah, and I think that my closing
0: thought on that point would be is uh, uh, generally speaking, I'm, I'm going to f- figure that it's safe to assume that the vast majority of our audience are people that are people that are already activated on this issue. So what the additional pitch I would make to sort of my specific audience on this point would be, you know, if you're, if you're already sold on the green ideas, but you're, you haven't been involved in politics, I'm not necessarily endorsing Green Pack or not endorsing them, I'm just saying, you know, here's one option, but there's blood in the water this year, and we have a chance to really make a difference. So without telling you what sort of, you know, which party to support or something like that, this is the year that you should get involved and do something because, uh, there's, as I said, there's lots of blood in the water, and uh, I think we can do something here. So uh, maybe take a look at Green Pack. If it doesn't, it doesn't suit for you, there's there's lots of other options, but I think this is definitely the year to get involved. Uh, with that, we're going to go to our tech. Edward, what are we going to listen to for our next music break? Hi. Uh, we got another song by the band. This is The Wait. Right. And we are back here listening to the Green Majority Radio Program here at CIUT 89.5 FM live on the air. Or you might be listening on a podcast or iTunes or off the website or reading off the blog or doing all sorts of other fun things. You could also be listening on one of our wonderful and very appreciated community radio partner syndicates all the way across the country and in the U.S. as well. We're also always looking for more new stations as well. So if you're uh, listening on a podcast and you have a local community station, tell them to carry the show. It's easier if everyone else can hear it, don't you mm-hmm. think, Stefan? So much more fun, really. It's it's sort of like the equivalent of like you know when you're driving in a car, which I don't drive, but someone drives in a car, and then you're listening to music, and so you roll the windows down and like turn the volume all the way up so everyone else can enjoy your music too. It's kind of like that. Exactly like that. <laughs> everyone loves that. Uh, we're just giving uh, we're just getting the audio ready here for our Peter Tabbin's, uh interview. We'll be getting to that in one moment. In the meantime. Stefan, we released something yesterday. What was that? Yeah, we released our next climate cartoons video. That's
2: pretty exciting. Uh, yeah, it's. Is uh, it any good? It's great. Oh, that's good to hear. I uh, know that's shocking. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> our opinion of, of our own videos—that is great. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's um, it's all about energy. It's a it's a great it's a it's a good segue into into where we're headed. So it's, uh, check it out now. It's, on the, it's live on the on the uh, the old website.
0: Yeah. So if if we if we had more time, I would have. I was thinking about actually playing the audio from the first one. I think we might do that in in a future show. I might just play some of the audio from people because I realize a lot of. Of people that are listening to the show are, are probably listening as a, either live on the radio and they're in their car or maybe in their office and they can't, you know, immediately go and look up the video or they're listening on a podcast, maybe they're biking around or something like that. So, uh, I there's probably a lot of folks who are listening right now who, uh, whenever right now might be for you, uh, who don't immediately have access to the website, so maybe they haven't got around to watching it. But uh, they're two minute videos, they're short, they have really fun animations. Dave did an incredible job, who's our, our animator uh, for that. On this one, got even more, there's like an exponential increase in. In the creativity and in the drawings that are going into it, and it's basically just a step-by-step guide about laying out the argument for well, s- starting with how did we how did we get to the system that we have, and then laying out the argument for change, mm-hmm. uh, but doing it in in such a way that it's designed for like even sort of like a high school audience. Uh, everything's done in very simple language and it's and it's less about sort of telling people you know here's what's wrong and here's what we think the solutions are it's just it's here's what you need to know to have an opinion on this topic mm-hmm. it's very much more of a primer than it is uh, a quote-unquote activist uh, video just in the sense that we're not actually advocating anything for, uh, for specifically other than being informed on this topic mm-hmm. uh, so i think they're great you can also uh, you can also win a t-shirt right as well there's a page uh, we have some green majority t-shirts which i've been getting many compliments on recently as i wear them around oh, and nice. people tell me hey i I, I went and googled your site and it's cool so if nothing else that works advertising right. works advertising works everyone all right you're um, here first are we ready uh are we ready for our interview in there we're getting the thumbs up okay so here we go with uh toronto danforth mp uh, mpp uh peter tabbins i'm now i'm getting myself confused. <laughs> <laughs> mpp peter tabbins from toronto danforth uh we asked him uh last week to talk to us about oil trains uh, and as well as about fracking. So we started the interview. The interview's on uh, online. It's on the internet here. So I'll be you're just playing clips uh, from his answers here. But the first question that I asked him was, uh, "What was his concern with oil trains?" Uh, because there, uh, he's been working on some legislation on this topic for uh, Inside Ontario. Uh, and I asked, "In what relation uh, this may have to uh, the Lake uh, Lac disaster?" So here's his answer.
3: Well, the concern certainly manifested itself first with Lac-Megantic. But this past March, in Nickel Belt Riding, near the little town of Gogama, a train carrying oil, diluted bitumen, uh, went off the tracks in the middle of the night, very close to the little village of Gogama. Uh, We were extraordinarily lucky. The train didn't derail in the village. Uh, Thirty-eight cars went off the track. There was a huge fire, large-scale contamination. And we could have had quite a few people killed again within a year and a half of the tragedy at Lac-Megantic. It's pretty clear that railways are not treating these hazardous products the way they need to be treated. Uh, It's pretty clear that governments need to be very, I guess the word would be heavy-handed, in dealing with companies that put the public interest at risk. When this whole thing happened in Gogama, uh, the local MPP, Franz Gelina, actually went out to the village uh, on a Saturday morning, having been called by the residents. Uh, there was this huge fire going on, flames 30 meters in the air, uh, this huge billowing black smoke rising hundreds of meters above that, and she had only been there for a little while when it started snowing in Lac-Megantic. Sorry. It had only been there for a little while when it started snowing in Gogama. All the snowflakes passed through the soot cloud, so what you had was gray snow coming down on this village and the whole area around it. The company was pressed. The Ministry of the Environment worked to try and clean up the obvious contamination, and the cleanup is still going on. But what I asked for at the time, and what MPP Jelena asked for as well, was prosecution of the companies involved. It's clear to me that as long as companies see that there'll be a spill, they'll have to do some cleanup, they get on with life, that they aren't gonna actually take the measures they need to take to ensure that people are safe. There are other bulk, dangerous substances that are transported by train. It's not just diluted bitumen, uh, oil from the tar sands. But frankly, we've had two oil explosions within these two years, very substantial in Canada. There may well have been more but those are the two that are in my mind. We in Ontario need to be using the full power of Environmental Protection Act to prosecute those who are responsible. People may say, rail companies may say, look there's a spill, there's a fire, no one was killed and we're cleaning up the mess. But frankly If you commit an act that's against the law, damages the public interest, whether you make amends or not, you've still broken the law. In this case, they put people's lives at risk. They carried out an act that allowed wide-scale contamination of air and water and land. Uh, If we aren't enforcing the act, then companies will have very little incentive to spend the money they need to have proper crewing of trains, proper maintenance of tracks, proper emergency measures to ensure that we don't have these kinds of spills and explosions in the future. So I asked, if that's the case, how and why are Canadian laws not being enforced? Well, I can't give you the whole history, um, but let's face it, often laws aren't enforced. You see toxic contamination uh, by companies that go bankrupt. Who do you enforce the law against? Uh, In my community here in South Riverdale we had a huge problem with lead contamination uh, in the 70s and 80s. The company involved left town. We were left with a toxic site. Who do you go against? Because the company's disappeared. It's pretty clear that a, if you're going to protect the environment and the people who live in that environment, that you have to have laws on the books that are of consequence and then you have to enforce those people who operate in a way that endangers the environment have to know that they're going to get caught and that they're, they're going to be punished. Uh, I have no doubt there are other laws that are unenforced as well. This is the one that catches my attention because the consequences are so grave. So I asked Peter if he saw the ultimate
0: problem as enforcement or the trains themselves?
3: We're going to be transporting goods, including oil, by train and by other methods for decades to come. Let's just face facts. I mean, we do need to move away from fossil fuels. We need to phase them out. We know that it's a decades long process. And so, whatever method we use for transporting fossil fuels, we have to make it as safe as we possibly can until the point at which we're not transporting them anymore. But I'll just note, the biggest explosions, the most notable events we've had most recently, have been related to oil. But we carry a lot of toxic substances through, through trains, through trucks. Uh, I imagine there are pipelines, not energy pipelines, but other lines that carry very substantially dangerous substances. The transportation of any dangerous substance has to be heavily regulated, and those who have responsibility, for those means of transportation have to be held to account. Or they will just say, occasional accident, cost of business, I move on. So another area
0: Mr. Tabbins has been working on is uh, fracking. So I asked him just to give us an update on what the current
3: status of fracking or hydraulic fracture mining is in Ontario. Well, my focus has been in Ontario. Mm -hmm. Uh, I brought forward a bill this spring, Bill 82, uh, a bill to ban fracking in Ontario. I looked at what happened in Quebec, in New York, in New Brunswick, in Nova Scotia. Uh, It's pretty clear that when jurisdictions are dealing with this, citizens encounter contamination of their water. Uh, They deal with, in some jurisdictions, earthquakes. Uh, You run up against environmental damage pretty quickly when you're fracking. Now, it's a major industry in the United States in Quebec it was shut down very quickly because of the public reaction against it. Uh, Quebec did an extensive study, talked not only about the threat to air quality, uh, the threat to water, uh, but also the long-term climate threat from the leakage of methane from these wells after they'd been put out of use. Uh, Certainly in New Brunswick there was huge civil conflict over this in New York State. Tremendous conflict, a report that came forward saying that really no one had a handle on the full scale of the problems, and a handle on how exactly to ameliorate those problems, how to mitigate the damage. Um, New York State put on uh, an interim ban, and as I understand it, they've got a full ban on it now. What I was bringing forward in Ontario, because part of the Marcellus Shale, the richest shale uh, in the States, the most oil and gas rich shale, extends into southern Ontario along the north shore of Lake Erie. There's been interest in Ontario in fracking. Uh, we've been told by some, some interests uh, that there isn't enough oil or gas there for it to go forward. But frankly, there's an awful lot of low-quality fracking being done in the United States now. If people can make money, and if they make their money from investors rather than from the oil and gas, they don't care. They're making money. So I propose this bill in Ontario didn't get a very warm reception from the Ministry of Natural Resources. Uh, In the end, the bill passed through second reading. That's the full second debate. It still has to go to committee and third reading. Uh, My hope is and my intention is to push to get this bill forward. Here in Ontario, we have the opportunity to develop renewable energies. We don't need to be going into a new generation of fossil fuel development. We don't need to be going into fossil fuel development that will put our water and air at risk. Uh, And frankly, that will put us in an impossible situation in meeting our climate targets. If you've got a full-scale natural gas, fracking gas industry going on in Ontario, you're never going to be able to meet the targets. We're having enough difficulty even without a large-scale fracking industry going on. Interesting to me when I was doing the research, looking at what was happening in the United States, because mostly people look at the fracking and the environmental impacts, but people need to be aware that about three-quarters of the companies that are doing fracking in the United States are financed with junk bonds, uh, that Standard & Poor's rated about 75 of the 97 companies that it rated at junk quality. And when you say junk quality that, that means these companies may not be able to repay their debts. At the same time, all kinds of companies and jurisdictions are investing huge amounts of money in fertilizer factories, in electricity generating plants that are going to be using this gas. The financial sector knows that this is not a sure bet. If you've got a high quality deposit of gas and oil, then frankly, you're going to get a very good credit rating. But a lot of what seems to be going on is that with very low interest rates in the United States, companies are able to get investors to loan them money through bonds to develop oil and gas, even if that oil and gas production is not particularly economic. Uh, I think it was Bloomberg's had a headline, uh, shale gas frackers feast on junk debt. Uh, talking about how a number of people in the investment community said there's a huge mistake going on here. People are putting money into these companies that are consistently losing money every year. They're borrowing money to pay off their old debts. And as Art Berman, who's a geologist in the United States, said in a speech he gave to the Houston Geological Society, these are Ponzi schemes. And ultimately that's not the basis for an energy system for any country any industry. Uh, The Oxford Institute for Studies in Energy, which in the early part of the last decade projected the shale gas revolution while in the United States no one was seeing it, have been saying recently that very big chunk of this industry is based simply on financing and not based on the reality of a resource to be obtained there. It doesn't make sense for us to invest hundreds of millions or billions in, really, these very sketchy schemes to sell bonds and produce gas that doesn't generate much money, damages the climate, and puts financial institutions at risk. People need to understand how shaky the foundation is for that shale gas, for that fracking industry. Because I know when we were debating this in the legislature, Many of the other legislators, in particular conservatives, were saying, well, look, there's this huge resource. It gives us independence from imported energy. Uh, gas is relatively clean. Uh, why are you against it? And I'd say, first of all, it's, it's an illusion to think that this is a huge new source of energy for us. Uh, secondly, I don't think people are doing proper accounting for the methane that's just simply escaping into the atmosphere, that leaks out uh, when the fracking goes on, and later when a fracked well is abandoned, those emissions can have huge impact. If you're getting a very large leak rate from those wells, then your methane or your natural gas burning may be as bad as burning coal, in terms of the amount of CO2 you're putting into the atmosphere. And lastly, if you're actually going to develop renewable energy and an economy based on renewable energy, investing all this money over here on this leaky, dangerous, problematic technology, diverts you away from where you have to invest if you're going to have a future.
0: So I asked him uh, what would appear, at least to me, to be the world's most logical follow-up, which is that if, if that is the case, why is the conversation still stuck on building all this long-term infrastructure for something that we know for a fact we, we have to stop using as soon as, as, soon as possible?
3: never ignore the momentum of an established industry to look after its own interests. I would say that there's a failure on the part of regulatory authorities, on the part of governments, to recognize what's going to be happening with the climate and with energy over the next few decades. Interestingly, the the Carbon Tracker Initiative in the UK has been talking about, and others, the IPCC have talked about this, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, and other climate scientists. We can't burn everything that we already have established is in the ground. All the oil, gas, and coal that we've already discovered, we can't burn all that. The idea that you would spend billions to explore for new oil and gas when you can't, if you want to protect the planet, burn even most of what you've got now is financially irresponsible. Interestingly, the Bank of England, uh, within the last 12 months, has started looking at the impact of the stranded assets of the oil, gas and coal that's going to have to stay in the ground if we're going to have any shot at stabilizing the climate. That has huge implications for stock exchanges around the world. Uh, The London Stock Exchange is is deeply exposed if, in fact, the merry-go-round stops and people stop looking for new reserves, Uh, if there starts to be constraint on burning carbon. a Whole bunch of companies have put everything into that. Uh, New York, Toronto stock exchanges, huge fossil fuel indexes, and yet, financially, risky. People need to look at the numbers. Uh, If we, in fact, are going to be serious about protecting the climate, stabilizing the climate, because right now we're in for a fair amount of warming, the best we can hope for is to stabilize and maybe over a few centuries bring the temperature down a bit. But if we're serious about stabilizing, we are going to leave an awful lot of fossil fuels in the ground. And huge investment in new fossil fuel infrastructure isn't going to be useful to anybody it's going to mean a lot of people are going to lose a lot of money. And we in this society, if we want to build one that's economically prosperous, have to take that into account. So the very last thing I asked him, and I I try and ask this of every politician I get my
0: hands on uh, in case I I don't I don't believe I mentioned it earlier. So in case you you aren't familiar with Peter Tappans, he is uh, from Team NDP. But I said sort of regardless of what political party you're interested in supporting, what would it hit? I asked him what his advice was for somebody who's looking to move these conversations forward uh, to try and have this have a, a bigger impact on the next election and make sure that we're taking this stuff
3: into account. And here was his answer. Well, I think if people are concerned about the environment and concerned about climate change, they have to talk to every politician they can get their hands on. We notice when we go to doors what people are talking about. Um, And when they talk about climate change, when they talk about environmental issues, politicians talk to each other, they talk to members of their parties. To the extent that it's a high-profile issue, it's on politicians' radars, it has more political impact in terms of platforms, arguments, messaging and really core party commitment. Climate issue has been off the radar in many ways since the 2008 financial crash. As you'll remember, it was peaking just before that. I know in the late 80s was peaking before we had the the recession in Um, 1990-91. The climate issue reasserts itself on a regular basis People are diverted by day-to-day things, and it's understandable if you don't know if you can pay the rent at the end of the month, you're going to be focused there. Uh, But for the moment, even though times aren't fabulous, um, people have enough stability that they can think about the bigger issues. Climate's becoming far more visible. Uh, The ice storm in 2013, the flooding that happened, uh, the large-scale wildfires, forest fires that are going on in Western Canada right now, Uh, the the out-of-the-norm winters that we've had for the last two years. Uh, Climate change is making our our weather more unpredictable, more severe, having an impact on people's daily lives. And as it does that, the issue becomes a lot easier to talk about. People understand the consequences. Talk to anyone who didn't study until the night before the exam. Uh, (laughs) Talk to people who should be 10 or 20 pounds lighter, but still eat ice cream. I mean, it, we're humans. That's the way we are. I mean, consequences come up, we act. Um, and so I. we should just recognize that's like Life is happening. People are seeing their basements getting flooded. I've had people in this writing told that they aren't getting house insurance anymore for water damage because the insurance companies don't have confidence that The sewers in their local area will protect them. Uh, We're going to see an awful lot more of that. The sewer lines in Toronto, frankly, all over North America, are not adequate for the new weather regime. So you're going to see an awful lot of damage in people's homes. That will put it on people's radars.
0: All right. And, of course, that was our interview with uh, NDP MPP. Peter Tabbins uh, from Toronto Danforth, uh, a longtime MPP and uh, and is my personal list of politicians who get it on the environment. He's uh, pretty near the top, I would have to say. Uh, but we're going to be back in a few minutes. We've got a number of news items. Uh, Aaron uh, Freeman from Greenpack was kind enough to s- sit through that interview. He's going to join us for a little bit more chatting in just a moment. But first, Edward, what are we going to hear on our next music break? Hi, we got the Guess Who Hand Me Down World. Just yeah. We're back. We're into the home stretch here on the Green Majority Radio Program here at CIUT 89.5 FM. You could also be listening on one of our wonderful and very, very, very appreciated. Three varies this week. Very so appreciated community radio partners all the way across the country and in the United States uh you also could be listening on a podcast and uh if that's the case you're already at a computer probably or at least at your phone and uh, why don't you go ahead and shoot us an email and uh, tell us what you thought of the show today doesn't have to be nice i can take the criticism if you have uh, constructive criticism feedback insults or compliments we take uh, any contact at all just makes me feel like i'm uh, uh it solves hard solipsism for me it means mm-hmm. that i'm not the only mind so uh stefan you have uh, you're going to help us introduce some news this week why don't yeah you go ahead? for
2: sure well first of all, i have a joke uh, joke, at the end of Tabin's interview, uh, he mentioned uh, that the recession seems uh, – the recessions are really good at driving down environmental interest. Mm. And I'm just wondering if our current Canadian recession we're getting ourselves into is, a, is perhaps Harper's most genius ploy. <laughs> uh, I'm, I, I feel like he should start p- pitch, pitching that one.
0: I, I, I think as long as enough people successfully connect the downturn to his policy of putting all our eggs in the oil basket – I think we should get away with this one, but yeah. it's it's a matter of how strongly that case can be made by not just by us, but by the public, by the other parties.
2: Mm-hmm. Uh, so, but with ignoring uh, th- that is obviously not any news item. Uh, but so the news items here, uh, of course, there is a. Uh, There was yet another pipeline spill, uh, which we'll get to later in Alberta, perhaps Mm -hmm. the largest one in Alberta's history. Uh, And what's great about, what's not great about that, but what's interesting about that, uh, obviously that is a terrible thing. Word Uh, choice. Word choice, exactly. Uh, So important these days. The word, when you want to mean the opposite of the word, don't say great. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, you think I would have figured that one out by now? Uh, no. Uh, is that while this is going on, uh, all the premiers are currently toge- meeting together right now, or will meet together quite soon, are poised to sign an agreement called the Canadian Energy Strategy, uh, which will be finalized and unveiled at the premiers' conference in St. John's. It's this sounds going-
0: exciting. We've been we've been asking for a strategy on energy for quite some time.
2: Tell us about it, Yes, exactly. And it's been going it's been going on for three years, which is interesting. So it's, it was started by the actual Conservative government uh, in, Al- in, in 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 Alberta, and is now being signed by the NDP government in Alberta. Uh, but it's what's of course the the a draft was taken out by that was was located and and published to some extent by the Globe and Mail uh, and I want to have uh, I have one quote from it and then I have a politician test that I feel like if this pol like uh, it's great that we have Pack on because I think if the if anyone if anyone can pass this politician test I think they should be supported uh, by Pack. and the test is very very simple mm. uh, and it's do your statements directly conflict with the scientific fact that emissions must peak by twenty thirty. Just if, if you say things that imply that go against that, uh, then I, I don't know I don't know how to talk to you basically <laughs> uh, because the quote here that I want to pull out from the draft uh, is and this is being signed again by by liberal governments, by NDP governments, by conservative governments all across Canada, and these are pre- uh, premiers of all the major parties um, and they're signing one quote in the actual draft is "As energy production expands to meet growing domestic and international energy demands." Our country must have necessary pipelines, electricity systems, and other infrastructure in place to move energy products to the people that need them. Mm. Seems like very innocuous sentence. Uh, however, in that sentence, it literally says growing domestic and national energy demands, implying growing demands for oil, mm. uh, which – almost everybody in the scientific community understands has to be peaking and decreasing this like this could also be pulled out by shell i feel like like about a year ago we had this entirely long rant about shells letter to investors about how they did not anticipate energy uh demand for oil to be decreasing by 2040 2050 because governments wouldn't act was basically their argument to investors and this sentence is basically saying yes shell is right yeah but there's we it, do not we expect fully that this is to expand
0: if if anyone's ever interested and their 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 uh, cheeks are not too uh, at risk of blushing too readily uh mm-hmm. such that they can take a little bit more colorful language <laughs> than we usually use on this show and you want to hear the most upset i've ever been that is a matter of public record go to our youtube channel and look up about a 10 minute video uh called uh oil companies to earth fu yeah
4: um
0: and uh and enjoy. Uh, but as I said, don't, don't say I didn't warn you about the colorful language. But that is that is pure. That is pure upsetness at statements that are from oil company CEOs where they basically said, yes, we understand anthropogenic climate change is real. This is before the recent uh, admission where they've known about it since like 1970 something already mm-hmm. Uh, uh Yet yeah, we accept it's real. We accept it's dangerous. We just don't think governments are going to do anything about it. So we're going to go ahead and maximize profit in the meantime. Uh, and then there's a 10-minute explosion about that. Aaron wants to jump
1: in. So, Stefan, there are a number of things that you said there that I, I found really interesting. One of them is you mentioned that you know, these, these, this is a statement that's being endorsed by governments of all political stripes. Uh, and, and the second is the nature of the environmental problem that we're talking about and how, just how much dissonance there is between the reality of environmental issues and the reality of politics. Uh, politics you know if politics thinks in the short term they think in very simplistic terms uh, and, and uh, even even more than the media in terms of of uh, the need to make things to dumb things down and to make them simple environmental issues are complex they're global and they're long term and if we don't address if we don't shore up the leadership that we need to address those problems in a way that that recognizes those qualities environmental issues we're not going to get the leadership we need so and the and the reason we don't have an approach that addresses the complexity the long-term nature and the and the and the uh the global nature of environmental issues is there's a leadership gap and that's that's really that's really about leadership and getting the leadership we need to, to make those problems, uh, to, to get those problems addressed and to address the systemic problems in politics that prevent us from getting there.
2: And I think also just to, to jump on, I think the leadership gap in some way can't entirely be blamed on the politicians themselves because they weren't elected on the environmental field. You know mm. there are people who are, who got elected for you know health because they really care about healthcare. They, they everyone has their own thing that they really push, right? Um, and so a lot of these people, I'm sure, maybe are well meaning people, uh, but they don't actually understand the
1: gravity or the long term difficulties that we're actually facing. Mm. And some of that relates back to the political the political relevance of environmental issues. I mean, we've had to, to your point, we've had people, we've had champions in government go to their leader's office and say. I'd really like us to do this. It's personally important to me. But we've never, certainly not at the federal level, we've never had a credible conversation where an MP goes to their leader's office and says, we've got to do this. Mm -hmm. These guys get me elected. That's never happened in Canada Mm -hmm. on environmental issues. So on that exact point, uh, there was an
0: article that was referred to me uh, from a website I'm very familiar with and highly recommend, but uh, it was pointed to me at this new post uh, on this site uh, by Kevin, uh, Kevin Farmer, who's not here today. Uh, But it's on the Skeptical Science website, which is a, a website I very much recommend. It is basically a guide to understanding uh sort of it's it's a counter climate denial website essentially where they've outlined all of the arguments that are made as to either the fact that it's not true the fact that it's not as bad as we say it is or that we basically can't do anything about it. So any of the different types of sort of denial, anything of, okay, yes, we need to do something about this, uh, it's a guide for that. However, there's a ton of other information on there. I think it just has a very useful tool in that you can, if you see something and you're not sure, sort of sure to sure, sure, say, oh, okay, well, I'm not really sure. I'm you know, I, I, I I'm assuming this is wrong, but I'm not sure why it's wrong. This is a great resource to go check uh, why that is. But the, the newest post that Kevin directed me to is uh, a hard deadline. We must stop building new carbon infrastructure by 2018. Uh, And I won't get into the article. We don't have time. But uh, they didn't pull that number out of a hat. That is a calculated figure. And and that's really what I think we're And and I'll ask Aaron for maybe a final comment on this as we're getting shy on time now. But sort of I I feel like I kind of want to cut the politicians some slack, not for their not for their positions. I think they're wrong. But I want to cut them some slack for being wrong, because like this is we're not just talking about sort of like well hey you know I want option A or B you know you ordered me a cheeseburger I wanted a filet of fish it's not it's not like that we're talking about like the entire basis all of the infrastructure all of the uh, their entire career like everybody this is this is what fuels the economy this is what fuels the economy everybody they have ever spoken to every lobbyist that comes into their office it, you know maybe anywhere from just above or just below half of the people in the public they talk to say no this is what's good for Canadian economy like it really is like an absolute just booming voice constantly oil is security oil is security oil is security and it's only very recently that a small you know the squeak has become a a bit of a you know a very loud squeak but still relative to all this other noise A very sort of new budding idea that this is not just not something we want, but it's actively bad. It's an actively bad decision is a complete 180 of everything they've ever learned and ever understood. Uh, Unless, as Stefan said, they come from an environment background. So maybe just do you do you give do you offer them some kindness along those lines about. You know, it's very understandable that they would be so poorly informed and find it so difficult to change on these big
1: issues. Well, I think you have to offer them some kindness and understanding. You have to offer them some information. So um, Celine Bach of Analytica in in Ottawa has some of the best information on the cleantech industry in Canada, which has more jobs and more economic development associated with it than the entire oil industry Uh, in Canada. And we're punching below our weight internationally in that sector. It's it's a growing sector in Canada, but our proportion of the global share of clean tech is falling year after year. Uh, so offer them some understanding, offer them some 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 information, but also change the calculus that they make when they make their decisions and make their statements. Mm. We need a politically relevant base for environmental issues in Canada because right now environment punches below its weight. So we need to change that calculus so that an environmental leader can go to their leader's office and say, we have to do this. We have to do this. These guys get me elected. And this is an opportunity both in terms of the country but also in terms for us politically to make progress on environment. Yeah. And I think
0: that we're we're out of time here, so my final comment will simply be that, you know, when when the whether you're talking to a liberal candidate or anybody saying, Well, look, we tried, you know, we tried running on climate change, it didn't work. At the time it was being sold as a moral issue. At this point it really actually is just poor economic policy to be investing in these in these projects, and we can prove it. And if somebody doubts you, email me. I'll send you all the links you need. But there, there's, it is no longer the, even the economic best option is to building oil. It is, in fact, quite foolish uh, if you're looking anything more than about a year into the future. That's all the time we have for on the show. Thank you very much to uh, Peter Tabbins for you know, being interviewed the other day. You can find that on our website. Aaron uh, Freeman for coming in from Green Pack, joining us for a discussion. Of course, my co-host, Stephen Hostetter, Ooh. as usual. And uh, that's it. Have a good green week, folks, and we'll see you all real soon.